Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 18, Farewell to the Dynasty, Farewell to the East. Today, we're jumping back into the main narrative. Now, if you'll remember, before episode 17 jumped into the religious changes which occurred during Peter's reign, we left off after the disastrous Battle of Silistra, with an army of Kievan Rus rampaging through Dobruja. Peter I had just experienced a stroke and abdicated in favor of his son Boris, who then became Tsar Boris II. Now, sadly, I'm going to start off with the death of Peter. Because, well, we need to get out of the way. So within a few months of abdicating and retiring to a monastery, he dies in 970. Boris II was 38 when he took the throne. But as you may recall, Boris II was a prisoner in Constantinople when his father died. His imprisonment was designed to ensure peace between the two states, a common practice at the time, if you'll recall, this taking of prisoners. But Bulgaria in this moment was at war with the Kievan Rus an invasion which was likely spurred on by Nikophorus Phocas, the Byzantine emperor, who sought to have these enemies, Bulgaria and Rus, exhaust each other. Well, following the victory by the Kievan Rus at the Battle of Silistra, they then wintered at Little Preslav, I'll just call it, a fortress on the Danube. However, in this case, winter was a time for diplomacy. Things were moving quickly. Now, as usual, things are a bit unclear, but either the Byzantines or the Bulgarians managed to convince the Pechenegs to attack Prince Sviatoslav's capital at Kiev during this winter. The reasons the Bulgarians would do this are pretty clear, right? But it would seem strange that the Byzantines would want to interrupt their well-laid plan to allow their enemies to pummel each other. So, you know, it would appear that uh, Focus's plan is going perfectly, right? The Bulgarians and and the Rus are fighting each other. Why end it? by attacking the Rus from behind. Well, this may have been because if the Kievan Rus were to keep on like this, they would seriously threaten Byzantine territory in the Balkans, not to mention Constantinople itself, as they soon will, you'll see. Uh, My best guess is that if it was the Byzantines, this is another part of their balancing act. They want their enemies to keep fighting, and they don't want either side to be too successful. They pit these enemies against each other, the Kievan Rus start really winning at the Battle of Silistra, and the Byzantines say, okay, let's, uh, let's try to even the scales a bit. Well, as soon as winter is over, Svetoslav tries to uneven those scales. He rushes north and quickly defeats the Pechenegs, laying siege to Kiev. Now, this, or perhaps some other unseen force, seems to have prompted him to move his capital from Kiev to this little Preslav fortress on the Danube. Now, this wasn't going to last, and I assume it was designed to prevent having his government and court exposed so far to the northeast while his armies were ravaging Bulgaria or Byzantium, but it was undoubtedly dangerous news to the Byzantines. They wanted the uh, Rus and the Bulgarians, again, to just beat the heck out of each other, But the Rus moving their capital farther south indicates that they have much larger designs on the region. And this surely had Nikophorus' focus more than a bit nervous. 
Still, while Sviatoslav had been dealy, uh, busy dealing with those Pechenegs, Tsar Peter, before he resigned, had sent an embassy to Constantinople to seek peace with the Byzantines. Uh, obviously, this is a terrible situation for the Bulgarians, and Tsar Peter, as well as Tsar Boris II after him, they just want to get out of this. They want this over. Now, I think I need to take a minute here to go over all these events. I'm going to do a little recap, because even I'm having a difficult time keeping fully uh, keeping everything fully straight. So, again... Emperor Phocas begins all this by refusing to pay tribute to Peter and starting a war. He then coaxes ally Sviatoslav of the Kievan Rus into invading. That invasion goes extremely well until the Pechenegs attack Kiev, and this may have been you know, pushed by the Byzantines or the Bulgarians. And yeah, now Peter, just before uh, his stroke, is seeking peace. Now, this time, the Byzantines actually receive his peace delegation much more politely than the previous one. There's no horse manure involved in this particular peace delegation. Uh, and Peter's sons are eventually sent to Constantinople. Uh, and the young... Um, uh, sorry. Now, Peter, just before his stroke, is seeking peace. And now, this time, the Byzantines receive his peace delegation much more politely than the previous ones. There's no horse manure involved this time. Peter's sons are sent to Constantinople, and the young emperors of Byzantium, Basil and Constantine, uh, remember at this time the Byzantines have several emperors at different ranks, well those two young emperors are married to Bulgarian princesses, daughters of Boris II. So things seem to be going pretty well. Hostages are exchanged, marriages are happening, long-term peace seems to be within, kind of within reach. So, Focus must have been pretty pleased with himself. Uh, to quote my favorite film of all time, 1968's The Lion in Winter, if you're curious, quote, You can tell me. Have you found some way of selling everyone to everybody? Well, Focus just about had. It seems like all of his plans had worked perfectly. The Bulgarians were now much more subservient. Having been beaten into the ground by the Rus, they're eager to make peace, to make friends, and they're willing to do it on Byzantine terms. The Rus, well, they're far away, right? They're not much of a problem. So I can imagine in some moment, Focus thinks, I've done it. I've uh, sort of sold everyone to everybody, as, uh, as this quote would say. But human beings are just so terrible at being predictable. Because the very next summer, or possibly autumn, 969, Sviatoslav, along with his new Pechenig and Magyar allies, how quickly the alliances move in this era, swept down into Bulgaria like a storm. This surely was not what Focus had in mind. Now Sviatoslav, he had seen the fertility of the Danube and what lay b below it, and suddenly he found Kiev wanting. He didn't really feel like going all the way back up to Ukraine. Well, well we would now call Ukraine. He knew full well that there was gold hiding in the walls of Constantinople, that there was fertile land here, and he refused to give up on his dreams, his machinations, on either of those things. And so when the Rus and their allies come to Great Preslav, well, the Russian primary chronicle, a primary source in this era, relates the story as follows, quote, So when the Rus and their allied armies come to Great Preslav, well, the Russian Primary Chronicle, an excellent primary source in this period, tells the story as the following, quote, Sviatoslav arrived before Little Preslav. The Bulgarians fortified themselves within the city. 
they made one sally against Sviatoslav, and there was great carnage, and the Bulgarians came off victors. But Sviatoslav cried to his soldiers, Here is what we call. Let us fight boldly, brothers and companions. Towards evening, Preslav finally gained the upper hand, that is, the Rus, and they took the city by storm. Bulgaria and Boris II became subjects of Sviatoslav. Boris now ruled in the name of the Rus, and could be, that way he could sort of better keep Bulgaria quiet and enlist their, uh, Bulgaria's support in helping Sviatoslav attempt to take his true prize of Constantinople. So this battle of Preslav, this one great fight, in the end, the Bulgarians, they just can't hold off these triple armies. I mean, bear in mind, you know, the Bulgarians have had brutal wars against the Pechenegs, against the Magyars, against the Rus, but fighting all three at the same time, they just simply couldn't hold them. And so Preslav is taken. And so Boris II essentially becomes a prisoner in his own palace, ruling in name only. And so now, again, you can imagine the Byzantines are terrified. They're now going to face Bulgarian, Magyar, Pechenig, Rus, allied army that's ready to march to Constantinople. And in fact, contrary to what you might think, many Bulgarians were eager to join. You know, some combination of shared Slavic heritage, anti-Byzantine feelings, and the ever-present desire to loot led many Bulgarians to join their recent enemies, this great Rus, Magyar, Pechenig allied army. And so it became a sort of, you could call it a North Byzant- anti-Byzantine alliance. And so, as I said, suddenly the worst nightmares of Nikophorus Focus were very, very real. His plan to create a weak and pliant Bulgaria at his border had suddenly created this massive army ready to strike at the heart of the empire. His calls to the Bulgarians to turn on the Rus were understandably ignored. So suddenly, it seems in in just one season, in less than a year, a few months, it goes from Nikoforos Focus's plan seeming to be totally successful. He seems triumphant. It seems all everything has worked out. He sold everybody to everyone. And now, suddenly he's facing an existential threat. It's all just turned on him. But luckily for him, the winter came. So while this force, this great army, paused for the winter, Emperor Focus, well, things get even a bit worse for him. He's murdered in a palace coup and replaced by John I, Tsimiskus. The new emperor's pleas for peace were met with suggestions that perhaps he could pay a massive sum some, and abandon the empire's European provinces forever. These were the kind of terms that this great army was willing to give the Byzantines. So needless to say, as the snows melted, both sides prepared for war. It was now 970, and the huge allied army moved south against the Byzantines. Their first target was Philippopolis, modern Plovdiv. Byzantine sources claimed they impaled 20,000 inhabitants for resisting them. Now, this is most likely an exaggeration, but undoubtedly, the assault was brutal. The Byzantine and the Allies' army then met at Arcadiopolis, around 80 kilometers from Constantinople, for the real battle. The Byzantines were outnumbered around 3 to 1, unsurprisingly here. 
Usually, as you recall, the Byzantines are really kind of triumphant. They're the ones with the big armies. But here, they can hardly hold a candle to the force they're facing. Now, as usual, sources to what exactly happens differ, but our best guess is that the Byzantines are holed up inside the city, hiding behind the walls of Arcadiopolis. Now, Sviatoslav repeatedly challenges the Byzantines to come out and fight. They refuse each time. The Rus interpret this to mean that they had more or less already won, and they reacted by plundering the countryside and partying as if victory was already theirs. But the Byzantines were far from ready to surrender. In fact, their commander had a plan. He split his forces into three detachments. Now two he placed on either side of a road hidden in the woods. Then the main force attacked the Rus' forces directly, specifically the Pechenegs. The Byzantines, once the fighting got fierce, feigned a retreat. They used this classic old Parthian technique that the Romans had learned long ago how to use for themselves. So they're pulling the Pechenegs away from the rest of the Rus-led forces. They're pulling them into this trap. So the Pechenegs are gradually led into the ambush set by the other two groups of Byzantine forces. So that when the trap closes, virtually the entire Pechenig force is wiped out and chaos ensues. Now the rest of the Rus' forces begin to suffer significant casualties. They're panicking, they see what's happened, and they begin to retreat. Now the Byzantines, sadly for them, can't seem to exploit this victory. Because instead of pursuing the retreating forces, they suddenly have to deal with a revolt in Anatolia, which brings them away. So as the Rus retreat north of the Balkan Mountains, they run to the east. And so a peace is agreed upon. Now, a year later, the revolt is taken care of, and it's time for the Byzantines to begin a new offensive. Peace or no peace. You can imagine the new emperor, John I, he's not exactly enthusiastic about simply letting things lie. The Byzantines have lost too much. The danger of the Rus and their allies is too great. He needs to strike. Also, undoubtedly, what's playing a role in his decision-making is that he's a new emperor, right? He had a victory here at Arcadiopolis, but undoubtedly, after taking power in a palace coup, he has a lot to prove. So, when Emperor John moves north, He follows the classic Byzantine strategy. We've seen it many times on this podcast. He stays relatively close to the coast so he can be supported by the Byzantine navy. Now, oddly, the Rus don't seem to be expecting this. So the Byzantine army quickly reaches Preslav and makes quick work of the Rus and Bulgarian army, which met them outside the walls. Now, after retreating inside, losing this outside battle, a siege begins. Now, at this moment... Byzantine reinforcements arrive, along with these the most advanced machines designed to fling the famous Greek fire at really great distances. And so, with these latest technology, the siege is hardly a contest. The defenders of Preslav are exhausted and the city is stormed for the second time in as many years. Many Bulgarians were killed in the assault, and Tsar Boris II, along with his family, are taken prisoner of the Byzantines exchanging their status as prisoners of the Rus for Byzantines. It's a sad state of affairs. Now, Runciman describes the state of Preslav as follows, quote, 
It was the end of Great Preslav. The city that so few years before had been the largest and wealthiest of all the cities of Eastern Europe, save only for Constantinople. The Emperor John spent the Easter weekend there, restoring order and refreshing his army, and sending a curt embassy to Sviatoslav at Dristra, to bid him either to lay his arms down and beg for pardon, or meet the imperial armies and be slain. A few days later, he sent out in full force to the Dristra. Now before he left, he rebuilt the fortifications of Preslav and rechristened it after his own name, Ionopolis. Henceforth, it should be a minor provincial city of the empire, distinguished only by the vastness of its ruins. End quote. So this truly is more or less the end of Preslav, the city. It seems we only began to know it. You know, in such a short time we've had uh, Pliska and Preslav, these two great capitals that have been each in turn built up and destroyed. And now the second of Bulgaria's capitals has more or less vanished. Even today, if you go see it, the little Preslav, this uh, small place uh, hidden away in Bulgaria, you could say it's also only distinguished by the vastness of its ruins. But things are only about to get worse for the Bulgarians, if such a thing can be imagined. In light of his grace loss, if his great losses, in light of the loss of the battle, of the city, of the Tsar, Sviatoslav begins to crack down harsh on the remaining Bulgarian subjects. He has a growing fear of a Bulgarian uprising that, uh, considering the circumstances, the Bulgarians will turn on him. And so 300 leading boyar nobles are killed and many more imprisoned. Bulgaria's sufferings continue unabated. Though perhaps this fear was justified because, as the Byzantines march north with, with visions of Sviatoslav's head on a pike, Bulgarian resistance absolutely crumbles. No one's willing to fight the Byzantines. The Bulgarians can see very well that they're stuck between a rock and a hard place, that there's no reason for them to fight for or against anyone, that they have lost. But the Byzantines and Sviatoslav, well, they still have fighting to do. So Sviatoslav, he's now at the Danube fortress of uh, Dorostolon, which is modern Silistra, where this battle happened so recently. Now, as these armies meet there, there's another battle in front of the walls, which lasts through the day, both sides sustaining heavy losses. The Bulgarians and the Rus are again fighting on the same side, and eventually they decide to retreat back inside their fortifications. And while after this there are a few harrowing battles outside the walls, in general the Byzantines lock up Dorostolon tight with their fleet on the Danube and their army on the land, and a siege begins. Now as the days and weeks progress, the stakes increase ever more for both sides. The Byzantine emperor is very nearly overthrown back home, while Sviatoslav has to watch Bulgarian settlements not only surrender to the Byzantines, but offer to help them defeat the Rus. So again, at this moment, you know, the Bulgarians are fighting for and against everyone. They've lost all sense of unity, and uh, they've got, well, Boris II is still alive, but don't exactly have a lot to fight for, and he's not free. He can't lead them. So finally, Sviatoslav decides that his only chance to win this siege is in a final all-out assault. He sees no other way out, and so he tries it. The battle is ferocious, and at times the Rus are very close to victory, but in the end, they're overwhelmed, 
and Sviatoslav begs for peace. Now, the resulting treaty's generosity reflects the Byzantines' growing impatience with the conflict. True, they've won, but they really need things to be over. They are tired of fighting the Rus and the Bulgarians. So the treaty allows the Rus to retreat in peace. Their army can go home. And it also restores their trading rights. In return, they promise to never invade Bulgarian or Byzantine territory again. Now, Byzantine territory this time also includes what's uh, modern-day Crimea. Now, Sviatoslav, in return, did ask for one thing. He wanted to meet his adversary. So a meeting was arranged on the banks of the Danube. Runciman describes it as follows, quote, The monarchs met on the great edge of the great river. John rode down clad in his golden armor with a splendid retinue. Sviatoslav came in a little, little boat, rowing with the other rowers distinguished from them only in that his plain white robe was slightly cleaner than theirs. And he wore one golden earring, set with two pearls and a carbuncle. And from his shaven head fell two long locks, signifying his rank. For the rest, he was of medium height, very well built, with fair hair, blue eyes, and an aquiline nose, and a long mustache, a true Norseman. Their conversation was very short, but the two mortal enemies were enabled to see one another. The Swede that ruled over Russia meeting the Armenian Empire of the Roman, Emperor of the Romans. After this long contest for the land of the Bulgarians. End quote. Now, quick minor disagreement with Runciman. I wouldn't call the territory of the Kievan Rus Russia just yet, but it's a minor disagreement. So Sviatoslav retreats back home in winter, cold, hungry, and humiliated. Along the way, he's ambushed by Pechenegs, his so recent allies, who joyfully kill him and turn his skull into a drinking cup and the old steppe tradition, just as Han Hrum had once done. So while the Byzantine emperor had claimed his war was in part to liberate Bulgaria, Boris II and his family are now brought back to Constantinople to march in a triumph as part of the emperor's booty, as his war loot. Boris II is stripped of his Byzantine imperial titles and given an honorary one instead. As far as the Byzantines were concerned, this was the formal end of the Bulgarian state, the end of the independent Bulgarian church. Thrace and Lower Moesia, the eastern portions of the Bulgarian Empire, were annexed. The western regions, from the area around modern Sofia through to modern Albania, on the other hand, were still outside their realm of control. You'll remember that the wars never really happened there. Both the Rus and the Byzantines never sent any forces, never took over anything. And so they take over the heart of modern Bulgaria. They take over where Preslav and where Pliska were. But there's still Slavs and Bulgarians living out in the west. And so here in these free Bulgarian western territories things are happening. The four sons of a noble family rise and act as a sort of regency for Boris II while he's still in Constantinople. They were known as Komitopoli, sons of the court, or count rather, sons of the count. Uh, and they begin raiding the newly acquired Byzantine territories and causing much frustration in Constantinople. And they're sort of uniting and binding these territories and waiting for the return of Boris II. So, the emperor 
devised a plan to deal with them. Now, it seems a bit odd now, but his plan was to actually release Boris II and his brother Roman into the West in hopes that these four brothers would hesitate in giving up their newly won power and that a civil war would develop. And so, they're released. And as the two brothers approach the Bulgarian border guards, in this moment, a deaf-mute guard, or so the Byzantine sources tell us, though I really really love to know who hires a deaf-mute border guard, so this border guard mistakes Boris II for a Byzantine noble based on the way he's dressed and shoots him in the chest. He dies on the spot. It was 977, and he was 46 years old. This was the true end of the House of Dulo, stretching back to before the time of Asperuch. Fortunately, though, Boris's brother Roman managed to explain who they were to the other border guards before he too was killed. And so he's duly hailed as the new emperor of Bulgaria. Now the imperial crown, jewels, and religious items were now in Constantinople, so undoubtedly the ceremony was a simple one in light of the previous grandeur of the great halls of Preslav. But wait, you're probably thinking, wait, 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 why, why is the House of Dolu over? Romans survived, they're making him emperor. Well, yes and no. Roman had previously been made a eunuch, meaning he was castrated, to those of you who aren't familiar with the practice, by the Byzantines during his captivity. Now, he was therefore more or less ineligible for the throne. So he apparently he sort of acted as a figurehead emperor uh, because he was unable to have children and unable to rule in a fully legitimate way. And so the result is that this really is the end of the House of Dulo. This clan that stretches back nearly 400 years to old great Bulgaria and possibly much further. You recall they claimed to be descendants of one of the sons of Attila the Hun. Now this historic dynasty had been ended by a deaf mute border guard mistaking the identity of his emperor. A tragedy. Now, I'm going to end here today. Seems like a good point as any. And next time, we'll follow the reign of the first Tsar of the new dynasty, the Komatopoli dynasty, Samuil. Now, Roman may reign in name, but Samuil will run the empire through yet another series of epic wars with the Byzantines, as the sun continues to set on the First Bulgarian Empire. So, stay tuned next time. This podcast is produced by Martin Christoph and Lance Nelson of the Bulgaria Now podcast. Be sure to give that a listen. The composer of our theme music is Teddy Raven, and the story is written by me, Eric Halsey. As always, help us spread the news by well, liking us on Facebook, writing us a review on iTunes, give us some feedback, send us an email. Just get in touch. We always love hearing from you. Now, also check out our website at bghistorypodcast.com, where, as usual, you'll find some interesting images and maps and things that uh, will generally come along with each episode. Finally, always consider making a donation with the PayPal button on the website. Uh, it's always, as I say, a really big help for us. And Now, finally, touching on that, you've probably noticed that this episode has been a bit late. Now, you can take this as a lesson in Bulgarian culture. Nothing really gets done during the month of August. But really, I have been very busy. I've been showing my family around Bulgaria for two weeks, uh, traveling quite a lot, doing a lot of things throughout the summer. And so it's been, uh, yeah, a very hectic time. 
But a quick point on my family coming, most of them had never even been to Europe, and they were just amazed and delighted by the nature, the food, the spectacular wine, the great company, everything they saw here in Bulgaria. They had a really magnificent vacation, much more than any of them expected. So I'm sure I've mentioned it before, but I really want to recommend trying a vacation in Bulgaria one of these days. Uh, it's, it's, it's sure to surprise you. I mean, I've lived here for years. It never fails to surprise me. So actually, another thing, if you want some trip advice, feel free to email the podcast and I can share my uh, thoughts and insights about what's great to see. Anyways, enough about all that. Thank you for listening. Until next time, uspech, or in English, good luck.